0: Welcome to Solidarity Cast, a podcast where your host, Elle, digs through history for lessons to help us cope with our new salesman in chief. For episode two, I read Tom Holland's Rubicon, The Last Years of the Roman Republic. And I'll address the question Has the U.S. crossed its own Rubicon? Tom Holland in no way discourages readers to find comparisons between the Roman Republic and modern times. This is clear by simply some of the subchapter headings he uses, such as Mutually Assured Destruction, The War Against Terror, and Blitzkrieg. So this might be a subject that will need to be revisited using a different source with a different point of view at some point in the future. The first chapter of the book is entitled Paradoxical Republic, and gives an overview of the values of the Roman people, and assumes the Roman had contradictory values. But while reading this, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe that Roman society was really polarized rather than individuals maintaining values that were in opposition simultaneously. And it also got me wondering how we even know any of this information. You always hear that history is written by the winners. But in this case, we also have to wonder what percentage of documents actually survived this amount of time. Anyway, just food for thought. Holland tries to point out some clear distinctions between the Romans and modern-day Americans. For one, he points to the Roman people being more gruesome, and gives crucifixion and the gladiators as examples. They also did not seem to treasure privacy or independence. But I wonder if these are even differences? If football and war footage were the only things to survive our civilization in 3,000 years, what kind of assumptions would people at that time make about us? Not to mention, I'm really not even sure anymore how much the average American treasures privacy and independence. To further support the classification of the Roman people as being a paradoxical society, Holland points out to the fact that the people demanded expanded rights while also at the same time being really resistant to change. And as the city expanded and conquered other territories, Rome became an international hub. It was a major center of trade as plundering soldiers and pirates brought goods from all over the world so strange and exotic goods and foreign languages were heard through Rome, there was an increase in foreign influence, which served as not just a source of pride for Romans, but also a source of alarm. It was as if engagement with the world was a measure of not just their success, but also their decline. And as Holland points out, quote, never did the hardy peasant values seem more admirable than when they were being so flagrantly ignored. The Romans also strongly believed that life was a struggle to surpass your ancestors, that liberty was the source of their ability to conquer the world, and they judged their system not by whether it made sense, but by whether it worked. Even the poorest members of Rome's society didn't look to change the system, just their place within it. Ruthless competition was considered the basis of civic virtue in Rome very much reminded me of our stress on capitalism and pulling oneself up by the root straps. Romans believed that death was the only alternative to liberty, and often used this as a justification for preemptive strikes even against negligible foes. While class distinctions were major and important, at the same time both the poorest of the poor and millionaires were citizens of Rome, so there was the sense of being in it together. The class distinctions were evident even in the setup of their government. The Senate was restricted to the upper class, known as patricians. The Senate voted in the two consuls, which were the highest office of Rome, and the lower class made up the tribunate. The tribune did have the power to veto the Senate. The way voting worked was also dependent on class distinctions. Rank determined the order in which citizens casted their votes. And rank itself was determined by wealth. For example, you couldn't be a member of the cavalry unless you yourself owned a horse. Not only did the higher ranks vote first, but their votes actually weighed more. So oftentimes, elections were decided well before the poor even went to cast their votes. And while Rome was famous for its aqueducts and sewers and found these innovations a major source of pride, they didn't exist in the poor parts of town. So Rome was somehow simultaneously the cleanest and the filthiest city of its time. The rich were considered more trustworthy than the poor, and that's because the Romans believed that necessity made someone dishonest. One of the major differences I see between the citizens of the Roman Republic and modern Americans is that in the Roman Republic, personal gain was considered subservient to the greater good. To place personal gain above the interests of the entire community was shameful in Rome. That kind of behavior befitted a barbarian or a king, not a citizen. Romans had to register in their census every five years. They did so at the Villa Publica, and they had to give information far more detailed than, you know, their name, their age, their children, their spouse. They also had to disclose personal tastes and all of their property, because Romans believed even your personal tastes and appetites were subject to surveillance and review. So that's the background of Roman society. The story really starts when the last monarch of Pergamon bequeaths his kingdom to Rome. The senate insisted on keeping the kingdom running as it it was, which included heavy taxation of the subjects. But the Senate didn't want to set up the bureaucracy to collect taxes. So instead, they privatized tax farming. People bid on contracts, and whoever won was expected to advance the money that was expected to come in. Then they could go and collect the taxes and charge whatever kinds of fees they wished. As you can imagine, these contracts were incredibly costly, so conglomerates formed to pool funds and bid on these contracts together. They issued shares, they held board meetings. And a reminder, this is all around 100 BCE. So previously, Romans relied on war plundering to make it rich, but tax farming seemed to be easier and perhaps even more lucrative. So Rome grew in size, which enabled them to grow further in wealth and influence. It conquered neighboring Italian cities and itself became a city of immigrants. Rome had always allowed men of diverse backgrounds to become citizens, and Italians in cities outside of Rome really started clamoring for the right to be citizen. When they were denied this opportunity, they rebelled. In response to the rebellions, a bill was passed to expel all non-citizens from Rome. Conservatives were concerned that their city was being swamped by foreigners. The military was able to quash the Italian rebels, and this allowed them to be generous. So cities that were loyal to Rome were given the ability to become citizens. And even rebels were offered the chance to become citizens by laying down their arms. But as soon as Italy was at peace again, it looked like Rome was ramping up for war with Asia. The great question of the day was who would be appointed the general for the army that would go invade Asia. And the answer boiled down to two men. There was Marius, who was an old-time war hero and his protégé, Sulla, who was recently coming back from victory and honor against the Italian rebels. Sulla was given command of the army to go fight in Asia. This made Marius furious. So, while Sulla was marching towards Asia, Marius decided that he would steal the command. Through political swindling, Marius convinced the plebeians to pass a bill that stripped Sulla of the command and gave the command to Marius. Sulla got word of this, and he was a bit confused because he looked around and saw that he had Rome's armies. Marius didn't have an army back in Rome. Sulla wondered why Marius hadn't considered this simple fact. Well, Holland points out he hadn't considered it because it was unthinkable. An army was not a private militia. It belonged to the city of Rome, not the general in command of it. And the idea of a citizen marching on Rome, his city, with Rome's army was unthinkable. And that's just what Sulla did. He marched back to Rome to, quote, save the city from her tyrants. Before entering Rome, Sulla and his army were greeted by envoys from Marius who wanted to negotiate and discuss terms. Sulla agreed to this, and they had no reason not to believe him. You see, the area, the ring around Rome was considered sacred, and no citizen was allowed to cross into what was known as the realm of Jupiter with arms. So Marius had good reason to think that he was safe, but Sulla ignored this convention as well. He marched straight into Rome with his army, all with arms. And really, this was the beginning of the end. At the same time, Sulla presented himself not as the destroyer of the republic, but as the savior of the constitution. Sulla got his command back and returned to march back to war, which really just left a vacuum back in Rome that was filled with violence. When Sulla returned to Rome with his prisoners of war, he housed them in the Villa Publica and then proceeded to slaughter them there. Just another heresy. Now there was an old arcane provision in the Roman constitution that allowed for power to be placed in one person in times of emergency or crisis. The authority of the consuls would be suspended for a period of time. and a magistrate would be appointed as the dictator. That's what this office was called. At this point, the dictatorship hadn't been used in centuries, as it was essentially anathema to the values of the Roman Republic. And yet, Sulla somehow got the Senate to agree to appoint him as dictator with no specific term. Sulla would retain the dictatorship until the Constitution was revised. Surprisingly, Sulla actually meant this, as he did not hold on to the dictatorship forever. He implemented several reforms, reforms designed to prevent someone in the future from doing just what he had done, and then he relinquished his role as dictator. His reforms included age requirements for certain offices to protect against youthful indiscretion. He revoked the veto power of the tribunate and made it so the tribunes could no longer initiate legislation themselves. He also passed a bill that prohibited former tribunes from holding any other office, which made holding the role of tribune very undesirable for anyone with political aspirations. Further, he increased the number of magistrates in the senate. But the citizens of Rome were really proud of their legal system. It defined them. It provided them with their rights. So a mere three years after Sulla's death, many of these reforms he instituted were repealed. So. I don't think President Comeover is America's Sulla, but I think we've already had our Sulla. And even if we had it, I don't think he has the desire to make our republic strong or would be willing to relinquish any power because he completed his mission. So while he's definitely done some things that I would consider desecrating our values and our system of government, he's clearly to me not doing this out of some desire to save the republic. And I do think that Sulla actually believed he was saving his republic. That's clear to me just by the mere fact that he didn't hold on to this absolute power that he had. I mean, sure... Hurt Pride definitely motivated Sulla to some extent, but I don't think that's the whole story. I think if America has had its own Sulla. it's Abraham Lincoln. Was Abraham Lincoln America's first dictator? A cursory Google search showed that I was not the first person to ask this question. I found an opinion piece in the New York Times from March twenty fifth, 2013 called Was Lincoln a Tyrant? Written by Jennifer Weeber. Obviously, we all learned that he suspended the writ of habeas corpus, but there was a number of other things that he did that were questionable. For example, immediately after shots were fired on Fort Sumter, he ordered a blockade of southern ports without approval from Congress. A blockade seems like an act of war, and Congress is the only body with the power to declare war in the United States. Lincoln also put out a call for volunteers for the army, even though it was Congress's job to raise an army. And then there's also the question of whether he had any right to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. You see, the clause of the Constitution that allows for the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus appears in Article 1 of the Constitution, which is the part that describes the powers and limitations of Congress. The powers and limitations of the executive appear in Article 2, and Article 3 covers the judiciary. While the clause uses the passive voice, "...the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it." It's still fair to assume that the power lies with Congress just based on where this clause is found within the Constitution. But Lincoln used the passive voice to justify that he could take this step. Chief Justice Taney of the Supreme Court ruled against him. He ruled that the power lied solely with Congress. However, for convoluted procedural issues, it's unclear whether this was done as his role as a district court judge or in part of the Supreme Court, and so the Precedential value of this decision has never really been sorted out. In any case, Lincoln ignored it. We can really thank Lincoln for the concept of the president having war powers, that in his role as commander-in-chief, there are steps that he can take. In fact, this is how he justified the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln declared martial law Made civilians face trial in military tribunals. The reason for this really was to avoid the issue of jury nullification. Because if in border states someone was being tried for treason for helping the Confederates, if a jury of their peers were amassed, there was a high probability that members of that jury would sympathize with the Confederacy. So to avoid that, Lincoln ruled that civilians during the war would be tried in military tribunals. After the war was over, the Supreme Court issued a ruling that this could not happen again, that if civilian courts are open, civilians must be tried in civilian courts. Whether this is still the law of our land, kind of unclear. I'm looking at you, Guantanamo Bay. Weaver's article goes on to suggest that Roosevelt was also a tyrant, specifically citing the Japanese internment camps. But she doesn't talk about something that I think is also a real you know, clear indicator of tyranny, and that was Roosevelt's court packing plan. You see, Roosevelt attempted to continuously add judges to the Supreme Court so that eventually Roosevelt's friendly judges would so outnumber those against him that they wouldn't rule against him. Roosevelt was ultimately unsuccessful in this plan, and this ki- these kinds of antics was probably contributed to the Twenty Second Amendment that was passed in response to Roosevelt's limiting presidential terms to two. Weber also mentions that Wilson went after political dissidents and those who disagreed with him, like leftists. And she contrasts this with Lincoln, who she said did not do something like this. He didn't use the suspension of the right of habeas corpus to try people who disagreed with him, but instead to try people for, for espionage or treason or draft dodging. But I'm not quite sure how fair it is to say that these people who were accused of espionage or treason or draft dodging weren't simply accused of those things because they disagreed with Lincoln. I think it's hard to parse that. Out. Weber ultimately concludes that Lincoln did expand powers of the executive office, but he was also president during an extraordinary time when the country was at war with itself, and maybe these extraordinary steps were necessary to save the republic. And like Sulla, Lincoln didn't continue to use these powers after the Civil War. It appears that Lincoln was overstepping, not out of a power hungry kind of grab or paranoia, but in an attempt to save the republic. So that is why I think Lincoln may have been our first dictator. So even though Sulla willingly gave up the role of dictator, what he did certainly left cracks in the foundation of the republic. The remainder of Holland's book delves into a variety of occurrences, any of which on their own would have made a situation insecure, but having happened successively, further undermine the stability of the Republic. Around this time, the Senate had been in bed with business for quite some time. The Republic was warring constantly. So while Rome warred more and more, the farming class was going off to war as soldiers. And back home, the farms were being sold off to conglomerates who were using slave labor to support them. Slavery grew and grew. As more slave labor was relied on, the more dependent the republic came to be on it. It was concerning that, quote, if the republic, rather than staying true to the aristocratic ideals so admired, permitted its global mission to be corrupted by big business, then its empire would degenerate into a free-for-all of anarchy and greed. Rome's supremacy, rather than heralding a golden age, might portend universal darkness, corruption in the Republic threatened to putrefy the world. And it was a snake eating its own tail, because as the Senate had closer ties with big business, they started to implement the idea of intervening wherever Roman business was threatened. And as trade increased, this essentially constituted anywhere in the world, which of course led to more war, which of course led to more reliance on conglomerates and businesses back home socially at this time something was interesting was happening as well excess became trendy to the point where it was superseding duty rich romans started pursuing lavish extravagances at the cost of serving the public good and then there was backlash to this the simple farmer was idealized and it became in vogue to use a poor man's accent in fact rich people who were passing themselves off as plebeians, were finding political success. And the Romans had really started even pursuing debauchery, which was something that they always criticized the Greeks for. Things like dancing and sex for other than procreation and taking pride in your appearance suddenly became ways of marking yourself as a success. And this applied to Roman politicians who were trying to emulate the poor as well as those who were indulging in riches. Caesar himself was known to be trailblazing, a very fashionable man. And he made his flamboyancy work for him politically, something that in past ages of the Republic would not have worked. Around this time, a politician by the name of Catiline started trying to play both sides, and he convinced the poor that he would be their champion. His strategy failed, but the damage had been done. He stirred something up in the people. Peasants began taking up arms in the countryside and fighting in the city devolved into violence. And this was all a reaction to the politicians like Caesar who were flaunting their wealth so garishly. They were thinking about themselves more than they were thinking about the Republic. The word revolution was whispered about and the Senate began to worry about this excessively to the point where it was almost considered a joke. Conveniently, at that point, Cicero received a package of letters that explicitly stated Catiline's plans for wholesale massacre. In response, the Senate declared a state of emergency, and Cicero was placed in charge. Cicero was seen as the Savior of the Republic, and commended for doing so with such little bloodshed. This phrase, Savior of the Republic, gets repeated more and more through the rest of Holland's book, and in fact, I'm going to be skipping over a lot of the details um, in between this point and when Caesar's appointed dictator for life. It's interesting and it's well written, but it also feels like the same story being told over and over, where someone in the government goes too far. And rather than relying on the foundation of their system, namely the people, their republic, Romans tap some one individual to rescue them. This happens multiple times, and I didn't want to keep rehashing the same story. What is important that I'm going to point out is this snowballing effect. It happened more and more, and it contributed to the inevitable death of the Republic. So I'm going to skip on now, talk about Caesar. So as I've already said, Caesar was a flamboyant, popular guy who had an easy time amassing power through his popularity. He served as a consul with a man named Bibulus, and while he served in this office, some things happened that his opponents, his enemies, considered illegal. So it was the custom in Rome, after serving your one-year consulship, you'd be given some governorship in one of the provinces. Caesar ended up ruling outside of Rome in a governorship for 10 years. At this time, he expanded Rome's territory, he made it all the way to the Channel, and in fact, he even stormed Britain quite unsuccessfully twice. But he eventually wanted to return to Rome, and he felt that he was owed for all the service he had done. He wanted to be consul again. One of his lackeys in the Senate passed a bill that he could run for the office of consul by proxy, without having to physically be there. This was necessary to do because so long as a man held political office in Rome, he couldn't be brought to court. If he came back to Rome, he would no longer be the governor, but he also wouldn't have been elected consul yet. So his enemies could bring him to court for all of the illegal things that they think happened during his first consulship. The idea that a consul like Caesar had done illegal and unconstitutional things while in office was pretty common by this point. Pompey was accused of the same. And this is just another example of the degeneration of the Republic. But one of the big things that happened that many thought was illegal during Caesar's consulship was he apparently, and it came out, he had formed an alliance with Crassus and Pompey. This was not uncommon. This sort of thing happened all the time. But at this point, it was very public and well-known. They were called the Triumvirate. Leave your unholy trinity jokes here. Undoing the veneer that the elected officials were the people in control really infuriated his fellow senators. And I think that that anger over, you know, lifting up that part of the curtain is what engaged his opponents. It wasn't necessarily the people that were upset about this. It just really pissed off other senators. So in response to the bill that permitted Caesar to run for consul via proxy... An opponent also introduced, and was passed, a bill that immediately ended Caesar's governorship and ordered him back to Rome. That would mean that Caesar would be back in Rome and in between offices and able to be brought to court. As a side note, um, at this point it's kind of hard to keep track of who's on whose side, and I think the sides switch frequently. It kind of reads like high school. (laughs) People are mortal enemies, then they form alliances, then they are moral enemies again, so just bear that in mind. When Caesar's called back to Rome, Pompey is in charge and they're no longer allies. Caesar gets word that he has to return to Rome, and he's faced with the following options. He could refuse to go back, be in violation of the law, stay where he is with his legions and essentially live in exile. He could go back on his own, tail between his legs, and face the inevitable criminal charges. Or, he could return to Rome with his loyal soldiers. Caesar opts for this last option. Crossing the Rubicon is actually meant literally. The Rubicon was a small river that demarked the border of the city of Rome. So, the moment Caesar crossed that with his soldiers, he was committing an act of war, an act of civil war. Back in Rome, they knew that Caesar was coming, and Pompey ordered the senators to evacuate the city and warned that whoever stayed behind would be deemed a traitor. So the government left Rome as an army was marching on it. Caesar and his soldiers pursued the senators outside of Rome. Some of them were inevitably exiled, many of them were killed, and a few of them came back pledge loyalty to Caesar. Rome was again at civil war for some time. Caesar gets stuck in Alexandria for some time where he meets Cleopatra and they have a child named Caesarion together. He also befriends Antony and kills off Pompey's sons. And finally he was appointed dictator for life This was pretty much a great betrayal to the values of the Republic, and again, people felt that they needed to be the saviors of the Republic, so they assassinated Caesar on the Ides of March. After Caesar's death, it's determined that his nephew Octavian was his heir, so Octavian comes to Rome. And like his uncle, he had an easy time amassing power and was popular. He ends up being part of the second triumvirate with Antony and some guy named Lepidus. Octavian was stationed in Rome while the other two were abroad. Octavian implemented a list of prescriptions. He ordered that Caesar be deified. He also called himself the son of Caesar. So essentially, he was pronouncing himself the son of God. Antony ends up in Asia and falls in love with Cleopatra. They have children together. Lupinus is unceremoniously sort of just pushed out of the triumvirate. So at this juncture, the only thing standing between Octavian and total control is Antony. Antony's relationship with Cleopatra was a source of ire back in Rome. Again, Cleopatra, you know, she was a queen. She was part of a monarchy, and the concern was that Antony spending all this time with her would get the wrong idea that maybe he should be a king in Rome. It wasn't helped that Antony named his children with Cleopatra using Helios, the sun, and Selene, the moon, um, which were considered gods back then. Naming your offspring as gods was a very kingly thing to do. It also didn't help when Octavian supposedly found Antony's will in the Temple of Vesta. This will supposedly legitimized Caesarian, which would have given one of Cleopatra's offspring a claim on Rome. It also left kingdoms and provinces to Antony and Cleopatra's children. So with the consent of the Roman people, Octavian wages war against Antony and Cleopatra, They commit suicide, Octavian kills Caesarian, and captured Alexandria, and ultimately ended the Ptolemic monarchy in Egypt. And he's given the title Augustus and credited with restoring the Republic, whatever that means at this point. Back in Rome, Octavian tells the Senate that while he was given universal powers with universal consent, he still considered these unconstitutional and was relinquishing them. And the Senate protested. They didn't want Octavian to relinquish these powers. They were concerned that they would fall back into civil war. So Rome was fine with picking safety and security over liberty and freedom. Augustus ruled Rome for more than 40 years. He insisted he claimed no special rank for himself that was not permitted by the law. He ruled acting as if he was maintaining the values and mores of the Republic, when essentially he was just shitting all over them. But the Roman people didn't seem to care. They were happy under Augustus. And the old guard who had cherished abstract ideals like liberty, freedom, pretty much were all killed in civil war. The respect for hard work and duty and honor dissolved. But while greatness had cost Rome its freedom, it had given them the world. There was food on the table and gold everywhere. Holland ends Rubicon with a quote. The fruit of too much liberty is slavery. So said Cicero. But then Holland asks, but the fruit of slavery? That was for a new generation and a new age to prove. So yes, I am certainly afraid that we are approaching the Rubicon perhaps even straddling it. There are just so many similarities from the story I just told you and what I've seen in the U.S. The willingness to erode our liberties and constitutional rights in the name of safety and security, the denigration of science and intellect, and a A preference for celebrity and showmanship or duty and honor. Simply not caring that much about the values and morality of those in power. The erosion of our system of government. The increase of the executive branch's powers through executive orders. Which, mind you, Obama needs to take a lot of blame for that. I know that he probably felt like he had no choice because he had... A Congress whose only goal was to block anything that he did. But now we have a man in his office who only cares about himself and who's going to use those same powers not out of necessity and not to help us, but just to help himself the refusal to even hold hearings on Merrick Garland's nomination to the court, and then the talk of what the Democrats are going to do in response to that. I understand the desire to punish Republicans for such an outrageous move, but that will just further undermine our democracy. It will become the norm that you just no longer even vote on on nominees. The court will literally just die off. And with a bench as old as ours is, that's not going to be too far in the future so reading this felt very familiar to me and again as I said at the outset I think Holland presents it with this framework The question does remain, if a different writer would have presented this information differently, would I be drawing the same conclusions? I don't know. So, I'm worried. I can't really say for sure which way things will go. I think, however, the outcome of the 2018 midterms will be really telling. If there is a huge shift and a big change, then I think maybe it will be okay. Maybe this was just an ugly period of time in our history, like Japanese internment camps, that we'll feel ashamed of later. But if there isn't a big turnover in Congress in 2018, I'm not confident our republic's going to last that much longer. I am reassured by the resistance that I'm seeing, the will of the people to maintain our structure of government. It doesn't sound like there was much of that in the Roman Republic. That's encouraging. And also uh, a segue to next time. Next time, I will be covering my namesake. I got the name Solidarity Cast from the Polish Resistance. It was called Solidarity, and specifically I, I knew of uh, Radio Solidarity. So that's where I came up with the name for this podcast and next time I will be covering The End of Yalta, which was compiled by the partners of The End of Yalta Europe Through Solidarity Campaign. Um, It covers the fall of communism starting with Poland. It's possibly the most Soviet thing I've ever seen (laughs) besides the fact that it was compiled by a committee with such a name. It also essentially is just a timeline. It's not really prose. It's bullet points in book form. It might be a horrible, tedious read. Or it may just give me a lot of room to riff. We'll see. Until then, stay tuned.